Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Okay, I've been trying to... I've been trying to... uh, At the top of my sermon, it's dated October 16th. I've been trying to preach this word since October 16th. I've been uh, mulling over and just praying and then God would drop something else and, and it changed my mind. And, and so, uh, so I have my notes here, but I didn't change the date. I think I'll just leave it. So, um, I'll start out like this, you know, when you travel into a new city, you go someplace, you, have, you go to a mall you've never been to before or one that you're not familiar with. And you want to go to a certain store. So you walk in the main entrance and you find one of those screens where they have, uh, it's a a map of the whole mall, right? And you try to find your store and you can see on there, there's a place that says, you are here. Today, I want, to, I want to be able to say to you, you are here. I, I, I want us to, for anybody that wonders, where are we? I want to be able to indicate to you, hopefully with this word today, this is where we are. And on top of that, this is who we are. Who are we? Turn to your neighbor and say, who are we? I, I think I have scripture that's going to help identify and help you understand who we are and where we are. And so I'm just going to dive into this in order to tell you where we are and who we are. I want to go back to some church history from uh, the beginning of the birth of the church and just kind of lay some foundation and end up in the 15th chapter of Acts. Somewhere around 10 years After the day of Pentecost, the church was experiencing growing pains again. It happened once before in the sixth chapter of Acts when some of the widows were not having their basic needs met. It became apparent to take care of people correctly that they needed people who would give themselves to practical works, practical service, so that the apostles could commit themselves to prayer and the study of the word. The new team of servants were called, anybody know? Deacons. We, we don't have the deacon title here, although I think we have people that function as deacons in the house by Bible definition. But now they've uh, assigned deacons, but now there's a much bigger problem. Gentiles are getting saved in large numbers. And they're starting to affect the culture of the church. 
Some may even say that the tail is now wagging the dog. There's so much, so many conversions uh, from Gentile people. And I'll, I'll, I'll break that down a little bit. It had taken quite a while for the Gentiles to become a real emphasis in the church. In fact, they're quite happy with life, with their life together in Jerusalem until persecution hit. Even open heavens do not guarantee that there will not be opposition. Even open heavens do not keep us from persecution. As long as there are people who make agreements with the devil, there will always be levels of opposition to God's people. The church at this time then spread around the known world while the apostles stayed behind in Jerusalem. And two things happened. People that were not thought to be leaders found themselves in a place where leadership was required. (laughs) Sometimes we don't know what we have in us until it's required of us to serve. They stepped into a greater anointing and found out pretty quick what they had. People got saved in significant numbers. And then they started to give attention to the commission given to them 10 years before by Jesus himself. Matthew 28, 19, my first scripture. Go into all the world. Is it there? Go into all. That's the New King James Version. That's all I'm giving you, that one little sentence. And then followed with the commission in in Acts, the first chapter, the eighth verse, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The movement outside of Jerusalem was growing so fast that they had to call for help from their spiritual leaders and the apostles helped with in the realm of healing and in in the realm of governmental rule. It seems that uh, the shift in their focus was almost by accident. This is when the church started having issues with Gentile believers. And, you know, we've, we've read about it. We see it, we know about it. And, and, uh, uh, and we think, how could they think that way? But it really kind of makes sense. Um, we've seen it happen in our day. Have you ever heard anybody who's sitting in my chair? Church members get quite comfortable and then revival hits. Those who reject it don't want to call it an actual move of God. But there's always a great influx of people who have not paid the light bills all these years that we've been coming to church. And they're excited and they're wondering why you're sitting there doing nothing. 
You just sit there. So when you add to the mix a great number of converts, things get exciting. New believers are known to bring all kinds of issues to the surface. There's a pastor, Chuck Smith, at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California, made a very unusual choice when he was confronted with this problem. I actually saw, uh, I saw this in a, a clip of a movie that's coming out. But he made this choice. He had church people, this was at the beginning of the Jesus movement. The members were concerned about their new carpet being soiled by the barefoot hippies. So Chuck said, then we'll just rip the carpet out. Priorities. Of course, when you have the need to justify criticism, you have to find a spiritual term to make it okay, and we call it discernment or holiness. It amazes me how many people who prayed for revival for years will leave a church once it comes. Great moves of God upset everything. Nothing is left untouched. Nothing. As fishers of men, it's our job to catch them and let him clean them. But we get so religious, we want to tell them what they have to do before they can be a part of our fellowship, right? So the apostles had a lot of concerns. All of these people coming in, and they have no clue about the Jewish customs. Most of it dealt with issues of holiness. It's a legitimate issue. They had to settle, these, the disciples, the apostles, had to settle on what salvation by grace really looked like. These new believers were challenging things that might have never been questioned by the Jewish believers. When you add to the mix the fact that there were those with unhealthy attachments to the old way of doing things, like the Mosaic Law, there was a real uncertainty about it all. And I'm sure each of the apostles had their own convictions. And it was clear when when we start looking at this story in the book of Acts, the 15th chapter, they were arguing. You know, just I would encourage you to go and read the whole story. These are the apostles and they're in conflict with one another about how this is supposed to go down. And so... Um, the first leaders conference was convened in Jerusalem. Is there uh, a a water? Yeah, I've got a partial bottle right there. You're going to give me a fresh one? You're going to give me a fresh one? I had to quit smoking, guys. It was... (laughs) Before anybody swallows their tongue, I have never had a cigarette. 
I'm sorry, it's taken me a little time to navigate through this. Um, So the first leaders' conference was convened in Jerusalem. This was the headquarters of the church. As they all met, each one of them presented their different issues. But the way they came to a conclusion is fascinating. They all started sharing testimonies. They each had stories to tell about God's outpouring among the Gentiles. As they heard each of the stories, they began to recognize a theme. God poured out his spirit on the Gentiles before they knew enough to get themselves acquainted with Jewish customs, Jewish traditions. In fact, he seemed to move among them with little regard for their own readiness for an outpouring. What moves me in this part of the story is that they actually developed their theology around what they saw God do. They didn't approach it with exegetical study of Jesus' sermons. That's noble. That's good to do. But that's not how they came to their conclusions. You usually need a move of God to be happening before you get insight about what it is that's happening. I've never heard of anyone studying their way into a revival. I give you some examples. I remember, I've told the story before, I was in uh, London having this most unusual demonstration of God's presence. And uh, I'll just, I, I won't take a long time to tell it, but worship was just crazy. And then we worshiped for an hour, hour and a half, and I finally made everybody go sit down. And I stepped off the stage, and there's a little speaker like this right here, and and the, the crowd is just like, there's a roar, and they won't stop. And I'm, I'm standing by the speaker, and I hear bagpipes start playing over the speaker. And I think one of the musicians came back up on the stage, and, 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 I, and I look over to because it just felt right. Bagpipes were in London. You know, it just seemed like the appropriate sound. And I turned to look at the keyboard to to acknowledge and say, yeah, that's a good move, and there's nobody there. But music is playing. I look back at the soundboard, like where Daryl is, and he shrugs his shoulder. It's like he doesn't know what's happening. And then there's like a rhythm in the sound of the people, but they're just on the front row, and they're just like, I look at them, and their eyes are closed, and there's just this roar and this, this sound, and there's like a rhythm that picks up, there's like a cadence to the sound they're making. And then a drum, marching drum starts playing over the speaker. And I'm like, I'm getting scared. <laughs> and then there was just, there was just this extraordinary, there was a big chunk of, of ceiling that 
So it was like the little white chalky stuff because of the, the uh, they, were, they were squares like this, but they were big squares, like, like maybe nine well, uh, of, of our little things. Well, they're not squares, rectangles. Maybe that was like one square and, and the roof. And so little pieces, and it just kind of broke off and fell down. And these little wires are holding it, but it's like starting to fall on the heads of some of these people. So ushers run and get it out. And when we realize it's kind of, there's just a little lull in the roar of the people when that happens. And the pastor runs over to the door. He's got a, 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 an office right here on the side of the sanctuary. And he comes running back out and he hands this, uh, prophetic word that was given the night before to Tommy Tenney for him to read. And it says, on this night, this woman prophesied that on the night that we're there, God was going to take the roof off of the place. And then, <laughs> explosion before, it was divine chaos for about an hour with no music, but just a roar of people worshiping. And then it was like in a second, it was like a vacuum that sucked all the noise out of the room. Whoosh. Nobody has preached. And for another hour, people stood in complete silence with tears streaming down their cheeks, nobody moving. And I remember the pastor getting up at midnight and said, please, quietly. It was, it was an encounter that nobody even knew how to define. I've been in other areas and where revivals would break out and, and I've seen it, the revival lift because the pastor became uncomfortable because he didn't have control of what was going on. Can I say that? I just did. It slipped out before I could catch myself. And... Or, or they'd be embarrassed by these, because anytime there's a revival, crazy people show up. And we just have to learn how to deal with crazy people. We don't want to dial down the move of God because we don't want crazy people. Maybe crazy people just need deliverance, but we are so un, we're so not used to taking people through deliverance that we're afraid of it. So we'd rather just dial it all down and not have to deal with it at all. And as a result, revival lifts. And God is like, if you don't want me here, I'll go somewhere else. <clears throat> Why do you think new moves of God always start with people who don't know what they're doing? We limit God to our present understanding of how God moves, all while praying that God would do a new thing among us. What we know can keep us from what we need to know. Think about that. When we become experts, we have chosen where we level off in our maturity. 
he still requires that advancement in the kingdom is made through childlikeness. Can I get a witness? Now, James, speaking of, James is now in this testimony service. He's the, the, the overseer of the church in Jerusalem. And so he's brought the testimony, the testimony time to uh, a conclusion. In Acts, the 15th chapter, in the 15th verse, he said, with this, the words of the prophets agree. One little, one little phrase there. With this, I, I, I want to break this down. What he shared in the following moments were probably new to him. As there's no record of this revelation being commonplace before this moment. When, when, when James begins to talk about Amos's prophet, Amos's prophecy in the ninth chapter. It appears that God actually dropped this scripture into his heart as they were talking. Wow, yeah. <clears throat> in other words, God gave scripture to James to back up the legitimacy wow, yeah. of what they were being told. Biblical backing is vital. But I doubt there's ever been a great move of God where everything that happened was preceded by revelation. They don't understand it before it happens. Experience gives understanding. Say that. Experience gives understanding. Complete understanding first seems to violate the issue of trust. It's deeply valued by God and his people. At any rate, James got a word from God to give the biblical foundation for what they were talking about in this 15th chapter. And I want to read Acts 15, starting with verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. So you have to understand that what has, was happening is these Gentiles were getting saved and the religious leaders were saying they can't be saved. They're, they're, they're Gentiles. They're not even circumcised. Right. I don't like this subject. <laughs> <laughs> the problem had everything in the world to do with Gentiles. 
The apostles knew they could be saved, but they were unsure of how much of their Jewish religion and history was important for these new believers. In Acts, the 15th passage, in this passage is the mention of the tabernacle of David. I, I like it. This, this is why I'm on this, uh, because I love this whole prophetic picture that James paints. This is the one story in the Old Testament that provides greater basis for the theme of the Christian life and than any other. It's found, you can look at it in uh, Samuel, the sixth chapter. It's also found in 1 Chronicles 15. It's a story of heart. It's a story of presence and extravagant worship. An unusual purpose among the nations. David's tabernacle became the backdrop for life as we now know it in the New Testament church. It had to do with King David who functioned as a priest. Everybody say priest. Priest. He's even called a prophet in the second chapter of Acts. David is the greatest example of life under grace in the Old Testament. He was a king, a priest, and a prophet. A complete prophetic picture of the Christ to come. It also portrayed the New Testament believer. David's tabernacle existed for close to 40 years. It was a complete new approach to God. The priest worshiped God for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, without blood sacrifice. This is pretty astounding if you understand what was required. There were several houses of God in the Old Testament. The first was in Genesis, the 28th chapter. It was the story of Jacob meeting with God on the side of a mountain. It was called Bethel, which means house of God. And there was actually no building. God was there, and that's what made it a house. Then there's the tabernacle of Moses. It gives us a picture of Jesus. Every piece of furniture spoke of something about the coming Messiah. It was built according to the specific details that God gave Moses on the mountain. And then there's the temple of Solomon. It was more glorious and beautiful than anything ever built on earth. It was humanity's best effort to give God something to dwell in that was consistent with his worth. It had very specific plans representing the permanent dwelling of God. And then there was the restored temple of Solomon. Israel uh, was taken captive Uh, Many years later, and the temple was destroyed, and then after they were released from Babylon, they came back and rebuilt the walls of the city and restored the temple of Solomon. It was built twice the size of the original. When God restores, 
he restores to a place greater than before restoration was needed. Know that. It didn't contain the beauty of the previous temple. Those who saw the former glory wept at the sight of this restored house. But those who didn't see the former house rejoiced at this one. But the tabernacle of David, I want to talk about that. It was built for worship. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm sorry. There's no description of building materials. It's never mentioned its size. All we know is the ark of the covenant was there. The presence of God rested upon the ark. And priests worshipped 24 hours a day. Different shifts were given so that this could be accomplished. And the two outstanding factors are... God was there in his glory and priests ministered to God nonstop. So I ask again, who are we? Rather, where are we? I try to bring this in. The prophet Amos prophesied of a time when David's tabernacle would be rebuilt. And I'm going to read from Amos's Prophecy, Amos 9, starting with verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, not britches. <laughs> I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. He identifies the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David's tabernacle as that which releases the fruit that he wants. The remnant of Edom and all the nations called by his name. The restoration project would release a specific fruit and that was Gentiles would come into the kingdom. James identifies the tree by its fruit. He noticed that Gentiles were brought in like the prophet said, which enabled him to identify the work that God was doing. The work of God was the restoration of the tabernacle of David, which is the tree in this metaphor. It is that specific work that God produced the fruit. More specifically, the church is the house that houses a priesthood, a worshiping community that offers spiritual sacrifices to God. First Peter, the second chapter, verse five, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, that's going to be important in a minute. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You turn to your neighbor and say, you are a priest.
the priesthood of worshipers is God's restoration project. The worshiping church caused an open heaven and Gentiles would see and understand truth for the first time. Worship cleared the airwaves just as it happened in Jerusalem in the second chapter of Acts. I love how James translates this passage of scripture in verse 12. Amos said that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. All the nations who are called by my name. That's Amos 9.12. But James said it. He quoted from Amos, but he translated it. He said that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. He interprets it into a New Testament context. Jesus did the same thing with Psalms 8 and 2. He took ordained strength and turned it into perfected praise in the book of Matthew. Edom, E-D-O-M, Edom, in the original statement by Amos, is the land of Esau. Esau sold his birthright. He became the biblical example of the rest of mankind who had no natural right to an inheritance. (laughs) Yet because of grace, we are grafted into the plan of God for his people. The bottom line in this prophecy is that you'll know when God is restoring David's tabernacle as it will be signified by Gentiles coming into faith. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. If you don't know how to identify yourself, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, orange, or green. If you're not of Jewish ascent, then you're a Gentile. Okay, did I say that right? Descent, descent, correct me, babe. So what is being rebuilt? The church with its unique Davidic anointing for the presence is the fulfillment of this prophecy by Amos. We are the community of worshipers whose primary focus lies in this one fact. Only priests could carry God's presence. God's pretty insistent about this. Mm. To see what God is building or rebuilding and how it affects us, we got to first learn from the original project. David's passion paved the way for this to happen. But before I lay into this story, I just want you to know that good intentions can kill. We're we're, going to talk about how David brought the ark into Jerusalem, the whole story. Saul was the king before David. As King Saul had little regard for the presence of God or for the ark of the covenant. David then became king of Judah and then Israel. He was acquainted with the presence of God from his time on the backside of the wilderness. 
caring for his father's sheep. He was a worshiper. He no doubt learned of God's desire for yielded hearts instead of blood of bulls in his private times with God. Some of God's best lessons can't be learned in a class. They can only be learned on a journey or David made arrangements to bring the ark into Jerusalem and place it in a tent that he had pitched for it. It was David's number one priority. There was nothing even close to the priority of God's presence with David. The story is exciting. The story is intriguing. And the story is deadly. We've heard it. We've talked about it. The nation of Israel planned for this day. They lined the streets to witness the ceremony of worship orchestrated by bringing the presence of God into the city of David. Those who could play instruments brought them in a sacrificial celebration to honor God as he came. The finest ox cart was prepared. Priests took their places as they ushered in the Holy One. But one of the oxen stumbled, nearly upset the cart. Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark. Out of his concern for the presence. But the anger of the Lord burned against him for irreverence. And God killed him. Just like that. His presence cannot be manhandled. This story alone should sober our hearts and our minds. And uh, any of those who would tend to use the anointing for personal gain. He will not be commandeered by man. David left the ark at the house of a man named Obed-Edom. And all in his household prospered because of the presence. So here's the deal. When in doubt, read the instructions. There are actually instructions on how to put these together in a little felt bag. And so that little bag has extra screws and that bag is uh, for each set is down. I dropped it down inside. So whoever takes these decorations down, if I'm right here, there's a little bag that the screws go in when you take it apart. But there's also instructions that I didn't take out. I thought I got this. <laughs> when in doubt, read the instructions. To say David was scared is a great understatement. He was so sure that this was the thing to do. 
his, his hunger for God was sincere and legitimate. But sincerity alone will not save anyone. Drinking strychnine, thinking it's fruit juice, doesn't make it any less poisonous. Do y'all think I'm done? Oh, okay. <clears throat> I got to wrap it up because I've got to go to the airport. Uh, I'm supposed to be there. It's an international flight, so I'm supposed to be there two hours before. So I'm trying to run out of here at noon and change clothes and then run out the door. So I apologize in advance. I'm a hugger. I hug as many people as possible, but nobody's getting a hug after church. It's for the best. <laughs> when David heard the house of Obed-Edom was prospering, he became more diligent to find out what went wrong with Uzzah. And so he apparently turned to Scripture for insight. It's... Here, here's, here's what he discovered. God will not ride on ox carts even though the Philistines seem to get away with it. The presence of God will not rest on anything we make. He rests on us. I believe that applies to organizations, to buildings, to denominations that have been created to facilitate ministry. But no matter how great the organization, the bylaws or the reputation... God does not rest upon those things. He rests upon people. Yielded people have the privilege of carrying God into our life situations. So David got a do-over. He announced the new plan to usher God's presence into the city. The people were ready. The priests were ready. The musicians trained for the day. Those assigned to carry the ark of his presence probably wondered about the fearful, exciting, privileged involved in their job. After all, the last guy that got that close to the ark died. But this time they had the will of God revealed to them through scripture to support the process. It's one of the greatest stories in the Bible and it should be known forward and backward by all of us by every believer as it is the key for us to fulfill our role in the earth it is our story the day came David stripped himself of his kingly garments and put on a priest's tunic which basically is an undergarment David danced in his drawers (laughs) This is not something that kings would do, but David is no normal king. He's no ordinary king. He would become known as a man after God's heart, a man of God's presence. After six steps, they stopped and sacrificed an ox to the Lord. He then danced before the ark with all his might. This must have been a fearfully beautiful sight 
all of Israel. <laughs> all of Israel was lining the streets, rejoicing in the actual presence of God. The musicians played. As much as was possible, a nation showed up for the event. The grandeur, the magnificence of it all. The sheer volume must have been overwhelming. Everyone present was impacted by this once in a lifetime experience. But there was someone missing. There was one notable absentee. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked at the event. She streamed online. <laughs> she watched through the palace window. Extreme worship always looks to be extreme foolishness to those who stand at a distance. Some things can only be understood from within. And I know we have a lot of sick people watching online. But it's my belief you can watch a fire on a screen and not feel the warmth. It's supposed to be profound. Michael was appalled at David's lack of regard for what he should be doing, how people were perceiving his passion. She was just disgusted with it. Instead of greeting him with honor, she tried to shame him. Second Samuel, the sixth chapter, the 20th verse. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servant's maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. His response to her was very bold. Verse 21 and 22. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Then verse 23, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Whenever someone despises extravagant worship, they put themselves in an extremely dangerous position. Barrenness is the natural result of despising worship. Barrenness and the absence of worship go hand in hand. This happened again in Jesus' ministry. It's when the costly ointment was poured over Jesus. All the disciples were upset. The devil actually doesn't mind worship 
that is tame. But extreme worship exposes religion in everyone. So here's, here's, here's the deal. This is, I, I think I can do this quick. Sometimes we read Old Testament stories and accept them without realizing how dramatic or revolutionary they are. And such is the case with David and his tabernacle because of blood. The law was in effect while David was doing this. The law was in effect until Jesus came and lived a sinless life, suffered and died in our place, paying the demand or the price that the law required for our sin. Under the old covenant, the priest could only enter into God's presence through a blood sacrifice, and then only once a year. Only the high priest could enter into the holy place, and then only once a year. When David became king, though, he sensed that God was looking for something else. Priests who would offer up sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise through yielded and broken hearts. This was done even though the law he lived under forbade it. Now here's David. I mean, just three months before, Uzzah did something and broke the law and was killed. But now David is doing something that the law forbids. The sacrifices were offered with instruments of music and voices, singers. In this context, every priest, everybody say every priest, not just the high priest, every priest could come daily before God without having to bring a blood offering. This order of worship was done 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This, of course, spoke of the day when every believer, a priest, according to 1 Peter 2 and 9, would come to God in boldness because of what Jesus accomplished. This is what was referred to when James said David's booth was being rebuilt. I believe it was David's hunger for God that enabled him to pull this experience into his day, even though it was reserved for another day. This was the plan of God for the New Testament church, but somehow there was a period of 40 years that David got the favor of God and it was allowed. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty crazy, again, when you consider that Uzzah just... In the book of Psalms, songs were written to exalt God. But something unique happened in a few of these Psalms. The writer would start to make declarations about the nations rising up to give God glory. Decrees were made about every nation worshiping God. Regardless of where you think this fits in God's plan for the nations, worshipers first declare it why 
because worshipers are in a place to call nations into their purpose. It is the sacred privilege of those who worship. Here are a few of the verses. Psalm 22, 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations all the families of the nations will worship before you. Psalm 67 verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Psalm 72 17. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. Psalm 86, 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. And then Psalm 117, verse 1, praise the Lord, all nations, laud him, all peoples. There's a, a prophecy that was declared by Isaiah and Micah that speaks of the mountain of God's people. Mount Zion and that this would be fulfilled in the last days. I believe that it's referring to the rebuilding of David's tabernacle. All nations being called into one company, a people of called worshipers. Isaiah, I'll read Isaiah's uh, prophecy. Isaiah and Micah both said this. Isaiah 2 and 2, and I'm done. Now it will come about in that, it, that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. I believe this is referring to a massive harvest that'll take place before the end comes and is brought about by worshipers. It is the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. Worship affects the destiny of nations. It affects the destiny of our nation. We have to understand what God's called us to do and be that we have been made a kingdom of priests, that we are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Only priests can carry his presence. So God said, I have a plan to remedy the problem. I'm gonna send my son and his blood will be spilled and we all become priests. It is desire that we all become priests. You might not be a priest with a collar and a little, what do, what do they call those? And you know, this is, this is the Gentile church. This is, uh, but we are a holy nation and we've been invited to carry Jesus. We've been invited to declare the glory of God. And, and it is in our worship that we call our nation to its destiny. The nations of the world, a, a revival of worshipers 
around the globe calling the nations to their destiny. I mean, there are a lot of dark things happening in the, in the world today, but Jesus will come. And with the brightness of his coming and one declaration from his mouth will annihilate all the works of darkness. And the nations of the earth will stream to the mountain of the Lord. Who are we? We're a priesthood. Where are we? We're looking, we're looking swiftly at the return of the king who, who, who reigns above it all. Swiftly coming to the earth. Specifically, I believe, our city, this, this whole region. There are uh, Goshens that God is raising up. There, there's a lot of crazy things happening, but at the same time, when judgment was brought on the Egyptians, the land of Goshen is where the people of God dwelled. And the plagues would come, but it would not affect his people. I believe that God is raising up a Goshen in this city, that Dallas is a Goshen where the presence of God will be a stronghold. And revival is imminent. Revival is already right in front of us. It is 12 o'clock. I have to turn this to Tanner and run to the airport. I love you. I believe in you. You're a priesthood. You're worshipers. And we're here to change our world. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.